0: I also want to introduce our guest speaker this morning. His name is Steve Unthink. Um, Many of you have already seen him because he did the talk on Christianity and the arts that uh, I thought was a wonderful time. Um, Many people in the community enjoyed it. Uh, Good time to be here. So I've invited him back. I'd love for us to hear him preach God's word because he not only is passionate about the arts but passionate about preaching as well. Uh, I met Steve because his pastor and... I share a mutual friend who I met in Turkey. So kind of an interesting connection, how the Lord works all those things out. Um, and he, he's married, has his wife, <clears throat> Maricela. Did I get your name right there? Maricela. And you, we call you Merck usually, right? Okay. And their child, Ambrose. Uh, You can ask Steve about that name. Steve loves theology, and in my conversations with him, I can attest that it is real for him, real for his life. So I think that's the biggest thing I would want you to know as you hear him preach, that what he talks about is tested in his life, and uh, it comes from his heart. So I look forward to hearing God's word preached uh, through Steve this morning, and I hope you do as well.
1: Well, good morning again. Uh, We are clearly, as you look outside, well into winter. Uh, And if you know your calendars well, we've just experienced, uh, I believe it was December 21st, the winter solstice. Uh, That has the distinction of being the shortest day in the calendar year with the longest night in the calendar year. Which also means from here on out, although it may not feel it and seem it, winter will officially be receding as the earth's rotation around the sun gets closer and closer... And the axis of the earth is tilted more and more in such a way that the hours of darkness will recede and days will become warmer and we won't have cold rain as much. For me though, springtime, what we all look forward to, uh, is one of my favorite times of the year. Life seems to be reintroduced into the calendar, Uh, flowers begin to bloom, and everywhere there's a bursting forth of fresh green leaves, especially here in Greenbelt, against the warm blue sky, but I think one of my favorite things about the arrival of spring is the early song of the birds, even before the sun has arisen, Uh, the sound of creation audibly praising the Creator, waking up any and all who would hear and announcing that springtime has officially arrived. The Lord has been faithful in bringing about another year of life, just as he has done from the beginning of all time. And for me, it's the singing of those birds which makes that most clear. Their announcement of praise to a life-giving God. Well, just as it is with singing of birds to usher in the approaching spring, it should not surprise us that as the twilight of the Old Testament era gives way To the morning splendor of the New Testament dispensation, we also hear various persons favored of God bursting forth into song. Luke, on the portion of scripture that we just read this morning, uh, uh, looks at the chronicle of history of God's redemption. And it's interesting that just before the appearance of Christ in this section of scripture... Uh, just before the ushering in of the cosmic and spiritual springtime of eternal life, there's recorded for us songs of praise, different hymns and poetry. We, we see here the songs of Elizabeth, what we just read this morning, the song of Mary. We have the song of Zacharias in the next section of text. Later, we'll see the song of Simeon, and the hymn of angels is recorded as well. How interesting, at the inbreaking of life himself, Jesus Christ It is the singing of poetry and the hymns of praise that best capture the event of Christ's incarnation, which we've just sung about this morning. Well, this morning, we will look at what is perhaps the most celebrated of all these songs, the Song of Mary, what is known as the Magnificat. Our text this morning actually is two songs, uh, and it starts with Mary's visit to Elizabeth, which we just read, where we see Elizabeth's short hymn of praise in verses 39 through 45, We also see Mary's magnificent song found in verses 46 through 56. But both, I believe, are making the same profound point, expressed joy at the gracious arrival of the Messiah. It is the coming of the Messiah, the incarnation, the advent of Jesus, which elicits the faithful joy sung throughout this text. This morning, as we attune our hearts to what God is revealing in this text, we want to ask the question, do I respond with the same degree of joy when confronted with the news of our coming Messiah? Yes, we have remembered his advent in the Christmas story, but we are still looking forward to his second coming, his second advent. Are we just as joyful? Can we really sing with joy what the hymn did this morning? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. We want to rightly bring him laud this morning. So let us this morning give our hearts and minds to this text, asking the Lord, too, to bless our time so that we might have the same joy seen here in Luke. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, or we are humble servants, Lord, And we are in need of your mercy and grace and the power of your Spirit. Our hearts are dry, and there may be many of us who may not just want to be here at all. But Lord, we ask and plead with you as sheep to a shepherd that you feed us, nurture us, and fill us with your Spirit as we meditate upon your word, and that you would apply your word to our hearts that we might, in joyful response, uplift you, magnify you, glorify you, and be more attuned to adoring and worshiping our Savior, Jesus Christ, with all joy. Our Father, may he be magnified this morning. May he take center stage in all that we read and meditate upon. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, the occasion presented to us by Luke here comes on the heels of what was that fantastic news that we all know, which was given to Mary that she would conceive and bear a son, and that this holy child should be called, of all things, the Son of God. If you look back in Luke chapter 1, verse 36, we also see that the angel Gabriel told Mary that her relative, the much older Elizabeth, had also conceived. And in her old age, she too would give birth to a son, a prophet who would prepare the way to this Son of God. So it's here where we see Mary react to this news. By herself, verses 39 and 40, look down there, quickly making the journey to see Elizabeth. The text said, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. We know she stayed there until the time of Elizabeth giving birth, or maybe just before. For the verse 56 tells us that She was there for about three months before returning home. So the question is this. Why did Mary, young, now pregnant, make this really rather difficult journey, 60, 70 miles, uh, to visit her older relative Elizabeth? Maybe she did it alone. What was behind that? Of course, the hint was dropped by Gabriel the angel, but not without warrant. For it seems that Mary, in this very unique time in her life, no doubt a little scared, perhaps a bit unnerved, was really in need of simple, godly fellowship. If we try and place ourselves in her situation, what do you do when you're brought face-to-face with the most mighty angel of God's starry hosts? How would you as a 12-, 13-, 14-year-old girl in ancient Palestine react when you're told you're pregnant And you've never known a man. It makes sense then that in this most unusual of times, Mary would arise and in a hurry go to visit the only other person who maybe might know something of what she's going through. For Elizabeth too, against all odds, she's very old, is pregnant and has been visited by Gabriel. Perhaps Mary already knew of those bizarre stories surrounding Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, where he entered the Holy of Holies before the presence of God himself, and he was approached by the angel Gabriel, and there was struck with a sudden inability to speak or hear or make any noises at all. For Mary, it was the comfort of her older relative Elizabeth that might provide the reassuring fellowship of someone who knew her situation. It was simple, godly fellowship that brought her there. But I say that this is simple godly fellowship precisely because of the way in which Luke describes their meeting together. If you notice, Luke doesn't describe Mary's visit to Elizabeth centering and focusing on the comfort Elizabeth would have brought Mary, even though she may have done that. Luke also doesn't describe Mary's visits in terms of the wonderful cooking Elizabeth could have provided, even if perhaps that was there too. Now, the way in which we see this meeting is in terms of how all fellowship is described in the Bible. It is a spirit filled fellowship, joyfully focused upon the person of Jesus Christ. You see, throughout the Bible, fellowship isn't a gathering of Christians just to hang out over coffee and cookies and small talk. Rather, it's more like the fellowship described here in verse 41. Look down, it says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Luke, as he does throughout his Gospel and Acts, describes for us here the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Here, where the Spirit has done the marvelous work of bringing about the pregnancy of Elizabeth, And even more wonderfully, the pregnancy of Mary, we see also the Spirit doing the work of bringing spiritual joy at the appearance of Mary, who is carrying the Christ child. Though it's normal uh, for a baby to move around during the sixth month of pregnancy, the account here described for us by Luke is actually extraordinary. For, as Luke puts it, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so... As a possible foreshadow of what John would later do in his life and is preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ, pointing not to himself but to the Messiah. Even here, as a six-month-old unborn child, he is leaping with joy at the presence of Jesus and even drawing the attention of his mother, Elizabeth, to the supremacy of Christ. The Spirit here is drawing attention to Jesus. This is fellowship. And this is not step with how Jesus would later speak about the work and role of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 14, Jesus teaches that the Spirit does not speak about nor glorify the Holy Spirit, but that His ministry was to speak about and glorify Jesus, the Son of God, drawing people mightily to Him. And this is a major component of true fellowship. For biblical fellowship, as we've been making the case, is happening not when the Holy Spirit is drawing attention to Himself, You will not find the Holy Spirit when the focus is upon the Holy Spirit. Biblical fellowship is when the Holy Spirit focuses people upon the gospel and person of Christ. Notice how Elizabeth uh, verbalizes this for herself in verse 43. Not only does her baby leap within her womb, but she too is amazed that the mother of her Lord would visit her. Her delight here is in Jesus And though he is a baby no bigger than the size of my thumb, a baby she can't even see yet, he is a baby whom she joyfully calls my Lord. This is not just a theological expression of Christ's humanity and his divinity. It is that. His humanity here is confessed in the very fact that Mary is his mother. He is a human person. His divinity is also confessed in that he is indeed Lord. But what's really being described here is the ministry of the Holy Spirit focusing Elizabeth on the person of Jesus the Messiah and in faith, not calling him the Lord, but calling him my Lord. The work of the Spirit here in Elizabeth is that Jesus, yes, even Jesus as an embryo in Mary's womb is her exalted Lord. That this is an image of Spirit-filled worship is also seen in Elizabeth's Humble response. She says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You see, here's an announcement which points the spotlight in all praise elsewhere, not at all focused upon herself. Elizabeth, a woman entering the senior years of life, a woman who, by merit of age, is no doubt much wiser than the young teenage Mary. A godly woman married to a godly priest and by all worldly standards should really have the full attention and praise of this mere teenager. But that's not what happens. For in true spiritual fellowship, selfish motives, selfish conversations cease to exist. Here's Elizabeth filled with the Spirit giving all her attention and praise to this teenager, Mary. Elizabeth is not jealous of Mary. She doesn't disdain her for her young age. And she isn't self-righteous in any way. The angel came to me first. Now she says, blessed are you, Mary, among all women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And moreover, what grace that you should have even visited me, that the mother of my Lord should come here. Who am I to receive such amazing grace? I wonder if Paul, who actually knew Luke, they were friends. He probably knew this story well thought of this very account when he was giving instruction on true spiritual fellowship. Do you remember when he commanded in Titus that older women should put themselves around younger women to instruct them in godliness and to pattern for them humility? Well, whether he did or not, the account given to us here by Luke shows par excellence the model of true godly fellowship. Two women who otherwise would have nothing in common are brought together because of Christ. And in humility, bless one another as they focus more and more upon the person of Christ. And here's where we see the center of this godly spiritual fellowship. It is Christ who is at the center of this meeting. And the response is one of spirit-filled rejoicing. Pure joy. Verse 44, look down. It says, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It was joy in Christ that made John, the baby Baptist, leap in the womb. And it was joy that led Elizabeth to give Mary this three-score beatitude. Three times in the text we see Elizabeth declare, Blessed are you, Mary. And just as in the Sermon on the Mount, where the word blessed carries with it this idea of happiness, joy, It's by no means describing a a merely subjective feeling of happiness. She's not just saying, oh, you're so happy. But rather, to be blessed is to have this awareness of God's given approval. Uh, To be blessed is to have the approval of God, or perhaps better described, the applause of heaven upon you. And so to be blessed is to also know this heavenly approval, which will elicit within you, stir up within you, a spiritual joy, a heavenly joy which finds its fullness and delighting in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you jump ahead just a little bit, this is why Mary in verse 48, also 47, can connect God's regard for Mary being blessed by the Lord with her spirit rejoicing in verse 47. Her expressing joy in God, her Savior, is the same thing as magnifying him. The two are inseparable. And so it is here for Elizabeth that the arrival of Jesus, Christ with her, has elicited from her a spiritual joy, a joy focused upon and stemming from Jesus, which is at the center of her fellowship with young Mary. Well, now Luke, as a master theological storyteller, points his camera to this young, blessed Mary, for it is now in her where an even greater expression of spirit filled joy is to be seen. How interesting it is, though, still keeping this idea of fellowship in the background that Mary's praises, they didn't come after the angel Gabriel visited her, after this grand amount announcement made by, by the angel. No, Luke places her response of joyful praise here, after her interaction and in fellowship with Mary, or with Elizabeth. It was through the flesh and blood fellowship of a woman like herself, a sister in God, who so wonderfully expressed a humble and joyful response, which then stirred up within Mary her own emotions, giving expression to her own worshipful response. You see, the emphasis here is on the importance of getting together to praise Jesus in fellowship. Her song then begins with this theme of joy. Look in verses 46 and 47. We read that Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is where we get the term, the magnificat. For Mary... Her joy begins by magnifying God. She's expressing nothing more than what we all know is the answer to the question what is the chief end of man? And I've heard on uh, Sunday evenings, the uh, uh, young ones in the church are going through the Westminster Catechism and should know that question and answer well. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of Mary? Well, the answer, as the young kids should know, to the shorter catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what Mary states. My soul magnifies the Lord, and I rejoice in him forever. You see, Mary's Magnificat begins by making that most profound of ideas central to the Christian faith. That to be a person who worships and glorifies God is fundamentally to be a person who is most happy and rejoicing. In God, If you're here this morning as someone who is maybe not so sure about this Christian faith, not quite sure about what's going on here, it very likely might be that you think of all of this as a kind of suppression to happiness. That is, you may be thinking that to be a religious person concerned with obedience to God, you've got to be a person who fundamentally is able to suppress and give up on happiness, And no doubt, many Christians might even give that very impression. Sadly, there are far too many Christians who go around as grumpy Christians in the world. But Mary, as really does the rest of the Bible, puts that notion to rest. To be godly cannot mean to become gloomy. And you know, that was the original lie that Satan used to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan promised... That what God wanted in Adam and Eve's obedience was at the heart of it, contrary to their ultimate happiness. That if they just ate of the fruit of the tree, oh, then, then, then they would really be let loose of the shackles of God. Confinement taken away and find true happiness. Then they could really live. There's nothing new under the sun, friends. Satan is still spreading that same old lie. He's convinced a lot of people. He had me convinced for years. That if you become a Christian, that if you put your faith in God and put him first, living according to his word, oh, you'll become unhappy. But oh, how God in his word time and time again promises otherwise. True joy, my friends, is found precisely here, as Mary puts it, in magnifying the Lord. That the true purpose for your very existence upon earth is not to slave away in gloomy obedience to God, but is to obediently glorify God and Enjoy him forever. And I'll tell you where that begins. It doesn't begin with mustering up within yourself the ability to start following in obedience after God. We're coming upon the New Year's. Don't start a New Year's resolution that you can do it. It's impossible. You can't. I promise. It begins with how Mary puts it in verses 48 and 49. With recognizing, firstly... With true humility, that God in His grace has regarded you and loved you despite of you for His name's sake. So the text said, For God has looked upon the humblest state of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Here is Mary a girl no older than 14 years of age, by God's grace connecting together what is really the ultimate questions in life. She rightly sees that her joy is intimately connected to her magnifying the Lord and her ability to magnify the Lord is intimately connected to her knowing that God in his marvelous grace has looked upon her and has done great things for her, counting her as blessed. That's the simple logic of this text. She knows that it is God who is doing the saving. It had nothing to do with her. And friends, that makes all the difference in the world. You could be sitting here right now saying, that's that's good and well, I like the sound of that. But this is the Virgin Mary we're talking about. She really is quite a unique person in the situation of God's overall plan. Her situation is not at all like mine. Mary, she was a key player in God's story. I'm a nobody. I mean, doesn't verse 48 specifically say all generations will count her blessed? No one even knows me. But let me remind you of what Jesus himself taught concerning this. Jesus himself in Matthew eleven eleven taught that those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even he. Or again, in speaking specifically of the Virgin Mary herself, here in Luke chapter 11, verse 27, a woman in the crowd which was following Jesus raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus replied and said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Friend, if you're here this morning listening to the word of God, you are. And if you keep this word of God, believing in Jesus alone and magnifying his name, enjoying him forever, well, then the promise is that more blessed are you than even the Virgin Mary. The Lord, for his own name's sake, delights to call you blessed and to hold you close as his very own in his gentle mercy so that he might be magnified and enjoyed forever. In fact, this is where Mary begins to move in her own song in verses 50 to 53. She moves now from considering God's grace in her own life to the grace of God spread abroad abroad in the lives of others. But notice who she's talking about here in verse 50. God's mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. It's for them, those who fear him. What does it mean to fear God? Who are those people who fear God? Well, she describes it simply in verses 51, 52, and 53. To fear God is to acknowledge God as God. It is he who has done mighty deeds with his arm. That is, he is Lord over all existence, and nothing happens without his doing or allowing it. He is the unmoved mover. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And in his goodness, and in his power, and in his wisdom, himself accomplishes mighty deeds. It is an acknowledgement of this that is behind a right fear, Of God. And you notice what the opposite of this is in the rest of verse 51, right? It is to be proud in your own heart, to consider yourself over and above the Lord, and to think that in your own strength you can accomplish the great deeds of life. Again, that old lie from Satan in the Garden of Eden. Do you see the constant theme running throughout here in both Elizabeth and Mary's singing? It's a heart of humility, which fundamentally considers God and others as more important than yourself. Implicit here is the idea that those who fear God trust not in themselves. They're not proud, but rather they, in humility, ultimately trust in God. For alas, to those who are proud of heart and do not fear God, for those who do not trust in God's ability to save and to sustain and to do all that is right, well, Mary says that God brings them low. And that he, in verse 52, brings down rulers from their thrones. You see, God is, as God should be, fundamentally opposed to those who would enthrone themselves as Lord and King of their own lives. To those of us who think that we alone have the key to our own ultimate happiness. That we can get joy for ourselves. And that we alone are the captains of our own destinies. The teenage Mary humbly reminds us, no. To those who are humble, she says, the Lord lifts up and he exalts. It is to them he is filled with good things. But the rich, they he has sent away empty-handed. True spiritual joy then, says Mary, is not found in the accumulation of whatever you and your own wits and strength can gather up for yourself. It's found rather in the humble fear of God our Savior, relying in him alone who delights to look upon the humble. And I guess the question could be asked, how in the world does young teenage Mary know this? It takes many of us years to get this. What allows her to so confidently speak of God in this very way? Well, alas, she describes that reason behind her joy, her reason behind her humility in verses 54 and 55. It's there ultimately because God is a saving and merciful God. And she knows that because the scriptures themselves testify to this very truth. The text says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Here is Mary's final amen to all that she has thus far sung. Everything she has thus far sung is really just the outcome of the fact that God is faithful, He is true to his promises of salvation, of a coming Redeemer, an advent of the Messiah a Messiah he had promised to bring about since the early pages of Genesis. Here's a Redeemer whom she's carrying now in her womb as the faithful fulfillment of all that God has spoken to her fathers. So what was behind all of Mary's joy? Verse 55 is telling us that she was seeing the fulfillment of what she had grown up reading in her Bible, our Old Testament. Isn't it amazing that Mary, in reading the Old Testament, that part of Scripture which is so often thought of as only full of laws and obedience and duty, so full of God's wrath and judgment, that she was able to connect out of that portion of Scripture that her magnifying and glorifying God was part and parcel of her also enjoying God? That true joy is found in exalting this God? You see, the God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New Testament. And Mary saw and would continue to see throughout the rest of her life how this very God is committed to our joy by himself showing unbounded mercy to help those in need. And I guess here is where Mary is most unique in her situation. That as she sat there reading her Hebrew Old Testament, the Bible open in front of her, meditating upon the promises of God to bring about salvation to the humble, She was also perhaps gently placing her hand upon her belly. And with a kind of renewed aha, realized that everything she read about, everything she knew about in the Old Testament, all the stories and all the laws and all the promises, all that God had done before in history, was now finding its fulfillment in the tiny baby growing within her young womb. Oh, the wonder of God. He who is mighty to save and himself accomplishes great deeds is here in this text using the weakest of vessels as a part of his saving purposes. And she gets that. She recognizes it, that her blessedness is not based on intrinsic superiority, but it's on God's mindfulness of her humble condition, that it is his choice to do great things through her, through any of us who are weak and humble. Mary's focus then, as she concludes her Magnificat, is really what our focus should be as well. That it is God and his faithfulness which has brought about a deliverance for mankind, a deliverance which results ultimately in our joy, our rejoicing in him who alone is our Savior. So then, as we draw near to the new year, slowly finish this Christmas season, ever keeping our minds focused on the advent of our Savior Jesus Christ, my prayer for myself, for all of us, is that in God's mercy and by his grace, we too might all magnify God by rejoicing in him alone, that we would recognize in humility our need of Christ more and more, and through that count ourselves most blessed, that we have above anyone else every reason to sing praises of God and to be a people most joyful, for really unto us a Savior has been born. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed most grateful, we are thankful, and Lord, we are in need more and more of your grace to stir up within us a rejoicing, a joy that magnifies and exalts in God alone. Lord, help us to see Christ, your Son, that we might not only obey him with holy lives, but that our obedience would stem out and and come from a deep joy that we see and that we have in Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.